I'm Emily Drashinsky. I'm Josh Hammer. I'm Rachel Bovard. And I'm Ben Weingarten. And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. As usual, we have a great show in store for everyone. We're going to start with NatCons winning some elections in Europe. Josh is going to break down some developments from Europe. Um, That'll be a really interesting conversation. Ben is going to talk about the geopolitics of the Nord Stream 2 explosions that uh, unfold folded this week. And I'm going to talk about the the laptop class divide uh, as we uh, analyze some numbers increasingly of, of the, the geographical sorting um, of people who are able to work on Zoom. And Rachel is going to talk about whether big tech can be reined in. It's a question um, I think Rachel has some answers to. Uh, it seems to keep her up at night um, and, and just dog her everyday existence. So with that, I'll kick it over to Josh to tell us about NatCon's winning a elections in Europe. Okay, so hello, everyone. So welcome back. So there's been a lot happening. So you may have missed the fact that kind of uh, right wing political parties or kind of like a, a national conservative kind of populist bent to them have really started to rack up victories of late over in Europe. So most uh, to kind of go back even a little further back to last April and May, Marine, Marine Le Pen made it to the final round of elections in France, where she lost to Emmanuel Macron, who's kind of a very kind of a, a Clintonian kind of Tony Blair-esque neoliberal shill. But the fact that um, Marine Le Pen's National Front was able to kind of get that far in the French elections, I think, was noticed by a lot of people around the world. And, you know, we'll see where Marine Le Pen can go from there. She's done a lot as far as kind of reforming her party to kind of purge it of uh, of her uh, of her ancestors, who I, I think a polite way of putting it uh, w- w- would be or not necessarily always the most savory of characters, especially when it comes to kind of World War II historical revisionism. But uh, most recently, and more to the point, uh, Georgia Maloney uh, appears to be the next prime minister of Italy, which is a G7 country. Italy um, has not had a particularly robust economy since the 2007-2008 financial crash. It has actually been consistently one of the uh, less good, generally worse economies in Europe since then, and they've been kind of consistently reliant upon uh, you know, Brussels and Berlin and the European Union for kind of their various debt crises. But it is still a G7 country. It is a country with a lot of kind of traditionalist historical clout. The name Italy, I think, carries a lot of kind of cachet as far as international politics, despite its, its fairly stagnant and uh, recessionary economy for years. And Georgia Maloney, who is of the Brothers of Italy party, appears set to lead a what is an, an avowedly right wing coalition. Now, the mainstream media has, you know, uh, with, with all of their characteristic nuance, has kind of portrayed this as a return to Benito Mussolini, a return to fascism, Italian Italy going backwards. And, you know, it is probably true that Georgia Maloney is uh, is poised now to be the most conservative leader in Italy uh, in many, many decades. It, it, it is also true that she is not even like remotely what the the caricature uh, descriptions of her as. I, I, I think she's probably best described as being kind of in the the Trump mode, as someone who kind of cares a lot about nationalism, who cares a lot about sovereignty. She's she's um, she's skeptical of further EU integration, but she is by no means clamoring for an, for an Italian equivalent of Brexit. She's not trying to kind of exit Europe from the EU. Um, in the past, she has had some kind of uh, friendly students, uh, friendly statements, excuse me, towards Putin. She has really kind of uh, retracted and walked that back. She seems to be more or less kind of on the standard European line uh, as far as uh, you know, uh, rhetorically condemning Putin and so forth there. 
but she is very conservative in some areas. I mean, she she has called for for drastic action to kind of seal the Italian border to cut off the the stream of of illegal migrants who are crossing the Mediterranean Sea from Tunisia, Libya, and Northern Africa. She is traditionally and socially conservative as far as kind of her stance on LGBT, gender ideology, one man, one woman, and so forth. And you know this this Italian election, it's it, it's it's very auspicious, and it also is just a near was it a week and a half, two weeks at at the most after a similar round of elections in Sweden, which is a much less populous country. It's not part of the G7 or anything, and therefore it's kind of a, a, a less important one, perhaps. But Sweden, which I think for decades and decades, kind of American liberals in particular, really kind of thought of as kind of like the encapsulation of like the, the Scandinavian, the social democratic model. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, if we had a nickel for every time, people, Bernie Sanders and, P, and people like him have kind of praised the Swedish or Danish model, you know, we'd all be rich, right? But Sweden actually has, of all places, now elected um, the Sweden Democrats, which is which kind of an avowedly NACON national populist party, similarly with kind of a, a, a mixed pedigree, but the, the current leader, Jimmy Atkinson, has worked extremely hard to kind of purge them of that. And a right-wing government is, it appears set to either lead or at least get major concessions from the government in Sweden. So, uh, you know, the questions are, uh, I, I guess, for the for the for the panel is, you know, w- what is the significance of this? Uh, do you ha- do you have objections? I'm sure you do to the way that the media has covered Georgia Maloney's uh, ascension in Italy. And what does this say about kind of uh, the success or at least the international compatibility of the national conservative agenda? Well, I, I think it's. Going- a- I'm going to go, go, go on record first saying Georgia Maloney's a badass. Yeah. <laughs> go, go. Um, yeah. I'm mean, probably we're about to say like very similar things, but I think it's, you know, to watch her talk about her platform being, you know, pro family um, and having the family at the centerpiece of everything she wants to do for Italy, I think is just is tremendous. And it speaks, I think, to the broader appeal of this moment, which I think is just obviously to your point, Josh, outside of the United States itself, which is, you know, as you've seen this intense globalization project throughout the world, I think you're now seeing a little bit of a backlash or a big backlash, I think, to this flattening of the world, this attempt to consumerize American life, to commodify American life, and to reduce everything to, in Georgia Maloney's terms, you know, all of us to be consumer slaves, um, you know, a homogenous entity simply to be, you know, parceled out and controlled. You are seeing a rejection of that, a backlash to that, a focus on, again, you know, the family creation, what matters in life. And you're seeing that seep up to our politics. And I think that's a positive development. Um, you know, I don't know the specifics of Italian politics, but to call that fascism is just frankly hilarious. I think it's hilarious that somebody who is pro-EU essentially is being just absolutely derided as a fascist. Like there's the steady drumbeat of fascism, fascism, fascism in every legacy media piece about Georgia Maloney because of a quote she gave years ago about Mussolini. It's literally the only thing they cite in addition to the fact the fact that she's a traditionalist um, on like the the LGBT, the, the broader LGBT agenda and has a, has a pretty mainstream position on the concept of national borders. I mean, it's just like amazing that if you put all of that together, it's somehow a, a, a an objective recipe for fascism uh, for the mainstream, the, the so-called mainstream media, which is actually like way more outside the mainstream than somebody like Georgia Maloney. Um, so I, I, there was an interesting uh, part on Tucker. I think it was last Friday, Tucker Carlson show on Fox, where he contrasted Kevin McCarthy's commitment to America agenda with uh, Maloney's, some of Maloney's rhetoric. And 
Tucker was like, nobody cares about the like, commitment to America, blah, blah, blah. And I think a lot of people know that. Um, but they also like, it, it, he's like, there's nothing you're really going to disagree with in the agenda, but then listen to what she's talking about. Like, do you have any faith that elected Republicans are going to do anything to, to deal with the dissolution of the family, the very serious dissolution of the family um, about the fact that we have no Southern border, about the fact that um, we're just like careening into abject decadence I mean, no. <laughs> so I, I like am very excited to to see her her reign of terror in Italy. Yeah. So th the first thing I'd say is you know, I think what occurred in Italy, what we've seen in Sweden and a number of other countries as well, just underscores the fact that the central divide in the Western world or what's left of it is really between those who care about preserving, protecting. Uh, and and flourishing of the most fundamental basic building blocks of our civilization versus those who essentially want to tear it up out root and branch or cynically put forth that ideology so they can accumulate more and more power. And that goes to the question of family, faith, tradition, nationalism, sovereignty and protecting your borders assimilating people as if you're going to import people en masse in the first place who are actually receptive to your culture, your history, your norms, um, rejecting gender radicalism and beyond. These are more fundamental than, again, as we've talked about before, you know, what the ideal marginal tax rates are and regulatory scheme and even the size and scope of the administrative state, et cetera, et cetera. These are about the most basic things. And I've always felt that European countries as a general matter, and of course, they're drastically different in their character, their history, their politics, but I've always felt are further down the progressive road generally, and so that these candidates continue to succeed, grow a greater and greater constituency, I think probably presages what we will see here, which I think redounds to the benefit of national conservatives because our principles are the ones that are standing up. And it's why, by the way, they have to call us fascists because the actual people acting as fascists, those fusing state power with, quote unquote, private sector power, are the ones seeking to shut down, stifle, silence and censor anyone who dares put up a compelling competing vision. So I think this is bullish long term, uh, but it speaks to the fact that nevertheless, short term, this is this battle is on the, the cold civil war that's being experienced in the West is on and the more and more successes accrue to those who hold the kind of national conservative vision the more tyrannical those screaming fascists are going to act in response yeah so the final thing to add then we'll send it right back to you ben for our next segment uh the new york times had this article the other day where they were talking about georgia maloney i think they used the word fascist 28 times in one article if, if i'm not mistaken um georgia maloney's lead up lead opponents like like the person who just who just lost to georgia maloney was on cnn and said that any talk of georgia maloney as a mussolini-esque fascist is quote unquote nonsense so we'll just leave it on that one the new york times might want to check with the actual person who lost to georgia maloney but ben let's kick it back to you we're gonna stay on your on europe for now it seems like Sure. So we sort of have a fog of war situation, but I wanted to lay out some of the facts and salient points around these uh, what appear to be explosions of the three pipelines, three offshore lines that form Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2, these hugely geopolitically significant 
physical ties between Russia and Germany that allowed for the flow of natural gas uh, in substantial quantities, at least through the first pipeline, Nord Stream 1, which was originally uh, opened in 2011. So we know that on the 26th, it was reported that there were these apparent attacks. It appears to be explosions that occurred, massive explosions uh, near the Danish island of Bornholm. These appear to be have created catastrophic leaks. I've seen estimates indicating that it could be months before repairs take place here in these heavily fortified and very deep uh, beneath the water lines. Uh, so this is a massive, massive geopolitical attack, it would appear. Uh, there's almost universal belief that these were acts of sabotage, and that's both on the European side as well as the Russian side here. Worth noting that neither pipeline had been at present transporting gas, but both contained substantial quantities of it. So Nord Stream, Nord Stream 1 had not moved gas since August, uh, with sanctions placed on it, uh, basically being used as a rationale to explain that maintenance could not be done on the line, so they were taken offline, uh, notably, of course, right before the winter. Nord Stream 2, oil had never flowed through there in large part due to the sanctions subsequent to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, worth noting also that the Biden administration had initially, wa initially waived some of the sanctions on Nord Stream 2, reportedly to try to curry favor with the Germans uh, over that connection. The Trump administration had fought vigorously against the creation of Nord Stream 2 and ultimately the flung of oil through it. So with all that background, it's also worth noting some of the other salient points about First of all, you know, where did these attacks come from and what were the motives behind it? And many people have resurfaced these clips of, for example, President Biden in February 2022 saying, quote, if Russia invades, there will be no longer a Nord Stream 2. We will bring an end to it. January 22, State Department Undersecretary Victoria Nuland, if Russia invades Ukraine, one way or another, Nord Stream 2 will not move forward. We've seen reports indicating that the CIA issued a quote unquote, according to the New York Times, vague warning in June to a number of European nations, including Germany, that the two Nord Stream gas pipelines that carry natural gas from Russia could be targeted in forthcoming attacks. Beyond that, and this is some interesting history here, in 2015, Pipeline Journal reported that, quote, the Swedish military successfully cleared a remote operated vehicle drone rigged with explosives found near line two of the Nord Stream natural gas offshore pipeline system. And there had also been U.S.-led naval maneuvers in the region where these attacks occurred in recent months and including in recent days as well. Uh, Ann Applebaum's husband, a big wig on the European side of things, said in a tweet, quote unquote, thank you, USA, with a picture of the spillage into the ocean. This also comes against, amazingly, coincidentally, uh, Poland and Denmark having built a new subsea pipeline, which connects it to a pipeline that brings Norwegian gas to the Netherlands and Europe, opening up this Baltic pipeline just a day after, essentially, the sabotage was reported. And as Europe is diversifying its energy sources increasingly to shut off the leverage threat that Russian energy flowing into Europe has created. So with all of that background, naturally, of course, the Europeans are pointing the finger at Russia here. And the Washington Post, I think, provides kind of the global regime perspective on things. When it says five European officials with direct knowledge of security discussions said there was a widespread assumption Russia was behind the incident. Only Russia had the motivation, submersible equipment and capability, uh, of course, of attacking a pipeline that were in Baltic waters controlled by NATO, worth noting. A quote, 
No one on the European side of the ocean is thinking this is anything other than Russian sabotage, said a senior European environmental official. One official said it might have been a message to NATO, quote unquote, we are close. Another said it could be a threat to other non-Russian energy infrastructure since so many pipelines crisscross the Baltic, including the one inaugurated Tuesday that I just mentioned. A third noted that crucial internet data cables lie along the bottom of the sea, and there have been long-standing concerns that Russia has a submersible program that could cut them, causing communications chaos around the world. So we don't know where these attacks emanated. We can guess as to the motives behind the various players. I think it strikes on its face as hard to understand, hard to rationalize the idea that Russia would destroy its own pipelines that would have created such leverage over Europe and particularly Germany, the seat of Europe in some ways, providing up to 50% of Germany's energy there. So an essential geopolitical connection. It's all, there's also a question of, you know, does this ultimately, to the extent it has an impact on the Russo-Ukrainian war, ease tensions or substantially increase tensions? And then to the extent it does, who gains from that? Uh, what does this mean for energy prices going forward? Who benefits and who loses as a consequence of that? What would America's national interest be in this situation one way or the other, or ought it to be going forward? I think these are all the types of questions that we have to address and be thinking about when it comes to what would be the motive behind the attack and then how does this play out in a whole uh, a whole scenario series of scenarios around this, Russo-Ukrainian war and beyond. Uh, all of these questions are open at this point. So be happy to turn it over to the group. You know, what are your impressions of this attack, the finger pointing in the immediate aftermath of it, and then what this means for the war going forward? So the finger pointing from the Europeans to Russia is totally unsurprising, obviously. I mean, like the, you know, the combined kind of like Brussels blob reaction to, to Russia has been obviously vociferously condemnatory and applying all these sanctions that at best have been feckless, at worst, many have argued, and I'm sympathetic to this, have been quite counterproductive. Uh, I, I don't understand personally, and, and you know, and maybe admittedly, like, 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 like Putin really is kind of like a North Korea, Iran style, like genuine madman who just like does like crazy crap for the sake of being crazy crap. And if that is the case, then I guess anything truly is on the table. But just thinking of assuming that he is like a remotely rational actor, like a remotely rational actor, I, it just makes absolutely no sense. It makes absolutely no sense. I mean, like this is Russia's thing i mean they had they, they expended like tons and tons of resources into this they expended a ton of geopolitical social capital getting to this you know when biden kind of you know had his imprimatur of legitimacy in the summer of 2021 to let Nord Stream to go through that was seen as a massive 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 win for putin and a loss for poland hungary and countries like there in the intermarium region of central and eastern europe so i i don't i don't think it makes sense I mean, russia could just cut off the taps i mean they, they, they wouldn't need to sabotage it right um, you know, I mean, look, some some of my more conspiratorial minded friends are are accusing kind of like the CIA and, and the Biden administration because it would kind of redound to the interest of American natural gas and liquefied natural gas exports. Um, I, I'm pretty red pilled boarding on black pill after the Mar-a-Lago raid, but I, I guess I'm not quite that black pilled yet to assume that, that that is possible. So my best guess personally is that this is some sort of kind of third party actor, maybe like a rogue terrorist state who has some sort of financial interest. But it, it's, a, it, it's, it's an intriguing story, to put it mildly, and I, I, I certainly hope that we get to the bottom of who did it. Yeah, I don't know. Like. I don't have a lot to say about this because I think the details are still so uncertain, but I think it is a little bit, the destabilization that is happening, you know, it in the Baltic area, 
that could easily spread to the Middle East, I think is concerning. <laughs> and it, this is where my faith in the Biden administration was already non-existent and it's cratered even further because it's, you have, you know, Joe Biden and Victoria Newland, right? Uh, the Benghazi queen sort of overseeing these things. I'm not, my faith is, is not well-placed, I would say that. So this is something that I think we need sort of firm international leadership and I don't see it coming from the administration. So if someone in the Senate wants to step up, I think now would be the time. <laughs> Sorry, I just have to laugh at that. <laughs> such a, the Senate such stepping a, up to anything. Yeah, it's such a, it's such a, a, a great idea and yet remote possibility. Um, yeah, I, I'm similarly to Rachel, don't have a ton to offer yet, although I did think um, the tweet from Ann Applebaum's husband uh, who has been mentioned earlier is uh, quite uh, influential in European circles was really something uh, just thanking the United States it was it was a picture of the disturbance in the water thanking the United States um, really just it's it it says it all right there um, and Applebaum who's very worried about all of her friends who have have gone over to the dark side that she wrote an entire book about it um, you know the, the opposition being she, if your people don't know, she's a, a columnist at the Atlantic, um, and I think a, a multi Pulitzer Prize winning writer. Um, who knows? Uh, but but anyway, it's also reminds me of a lot of the commentary over the last week or so uh, that, that's almost seeming to cheerlead um, Putin, Putin's decline uh, with without having any clear vision for what the end of a war would look like. Uh, and that's a dangerous place to be, to say we're going to keep weakening Vladimir Putin, but we don't know uh, short of regi regime change, right? Like we, we won't necessarily say that we want regime change, that it sort of slips out into the open sometimes. Um, so the West is in a real, real conundrum. Uh, and I think everybody knows it at this point, unless you're Adam Kinzinger and you really do want regime change. Um, so, but even then you, you don't necessarily have public support for it. I'm going to talk about uh, the this this increasingly, I think, very important class divide that we see geographically um, and in the way that we all live our everyday lives. There was a report, and I would encourage folks to read it, by the Economic Innovation Group that has all kinds of statistics on uh, remote work and like it breaks it down like telework share versus commutes, uh, telework share by education, just really fascinating information. And I think important information that we shouldn't ignore um, because this has changed the way people live and work dramatically in the span of about a couple of years. Uh, but what's really interesting is to see the, the areas uh, where remote work is most common. So even if, you know, so Washington DC is actually has the highest teleworking share of the population, about 34%. So even there, um, it's not most of the population, although it is most of the media. So they probably overstate how, how many people are, are currently doing this or have access to it. Um, but 34% of the population, that's a huge, 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 huge spike in a very short period of time. Um, and it's going to start making really big differences in people's lives. If you look at the breakdowns by education, uh, Washington DC is famously uh, the, the metro area is famously one of the, the wealthiest places in the country. Uh, the surrounding counties outside Washington, D.C., uh, where people are teleworking in high numbers, are uh, very, very wealthy. Uh, and so if you have the ability to do Zoom work, that means you also have more flexibility with childcare. That means you also have more flexibility with 
doctor's appointments, uh, with any, any of these, these different things with, uh, travel, um, you don't have the commute, uh, that the cost of a commute. Um, and, and so these are like really, really big differences, uh, in people's everyday lives. And I think it's going to start to become a really big class divide, uh, going forward. Um, so uh, all, all that is to say, how should, uh, the question that I'll toss to the group is how should the conservative movement, how should the right be thinking about this? Um, especially in the context of Zoom work being very sedentary, um, uh, probably not being ideal for everyone. It's very alienating and isolating. Uh, people don't meet at work. They don't socialize on a, a daily basis unless, you know, they're teleworking part-time and, you know, taking their, their kids and doing PTA stuff and have a lot of social capital going forward. Um, so, so what, what's the way for, for the right to start thinking about some of these, these salient divides going forward? I think your point about how this sort of is divided among classes is a really important one because it became really evident during COVID. And I think it's more important also to talk about it because the people who are able to work remotely do tend to be in sort of, you know, these sort of elite classes, we call them, I think the term laptop class came out of the COVID pandemic that I think describes these people very effectively. But policy is often made based on their own preferences. And we saw this explicitly during COVID-19, where the people advocating the lockdowns, the people advocating for school closures, the people advocating for, you know, restricted travel were all the people that could afford to sit in their houses and get, you know, Grubhub and Uber Eats delivered to them to afford childcare uh, when their kids are out of school or to pay a tutor or something like that. So how we make policy, I think, is, is a derivative question of how we work. And so this is going to change, I think, have a downstream effect on our policy priorities if we, you know, start breaking, breaking uh, in this way and how we how we operate in the workplace. So it's a dramatic shift. Um, so I think we do need to be talking a little bit more about it. And then I think Emily at NatCon, you gave us a, a speech which I thought was really interesting in talking about how these things need to shape our policy discussion. Like whether or not we need policy to address certain things is a separate argument away from the fact that we just need to let these things engage, enter into our policy discussion, the fact that we don't move, <laughs> the fact that we, you know, eat a lot of sugar and that we're of, you know, fat and decadent society, like the fact that big tech is not good for us. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we need to have these things inner, sort of infiltrate our policy discussions. And this has to be one because this is a huge titanic shift in just a you know, couple of years um, that is going to change, I think, a lot of our national conversation. Yeah, so when it comes to this particular topic, I always think back to this one really good, and I hope, but I hope not, but fear will be prescient blog post from Rusty Reno, who of course is the editor of First Things Magazine, that he did for Orin's American Compass Group uh, a while ago. I mean, I can't remember exactly when it was. It's probably like late 2020, early 2021, and. Rusty basically hypothesized, and I think we discussed this on this podcast before, but he basically hypothesized that one long-term, not particularly easily foreseeable, but if you want to kind of just put some your, your social scientist cap on, you can kind of see it. One, one potentially foreseeable consequence of the work-from-home revolution is that there might just be less innovation. Like there might be less kind of startup culture, kind of uh, nourishing and kind of and kind of developing and kind of the, the traditional kind of hotbed seeds or the less traditional hotbed seeds. And the reason that Rusty speculated this is because 
there will be less kind of, uh, you know, motivated people like in a physical workspace. So there'll be less kind of casual interactions at the water cooler or in the elevator or kind of going down to the gym during their lunch break together. And, you know, I think for many folks, especially kind of like the Silicon Valley heydays, if you will, like the 70s, 80s folks like that, I think a lot of those companies started along like very similar lines to that, kind of just like casual conversations in the church, in the workplace, in the basement. So, uh, you know, I, 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 that's one thing that I definitely do fear. It's actually kind of an interesting segue to our, to our, to our final segment. It's going to be about, about antitrust is that potentially kind of, uh, you know, if, uh, if what I'm saying, what Rusty is saying actually is true, then that could actually militate in favor of an even stronger public policy antitrust response when there is kind of an industry such as the technology industry or so forth, where it's kind of just a massive agglomerated power. If there is kind of um, a uh, if the barriers to entry are kind of made higher from the work from home revolution, so I'm not sure if I fully kind of explain that, but just one thing I think that we should be thinking about. And, and, and you know, I guess the other question then is, uh, you know, in, in addition to antitrust, what kind of actual public policies can we have? And uh, I, I'm not sure. I, I, I honestly have not like fully thought it out there. But it, it certainly, I think, should be within kind of the realm of plausibility for legislators to start just hard requiring certain types of industries to have X number of minimum days kind of in person. Uh, I haven't like fully thought that through, but, you know, that's sort of kind of like hard thumb on the scale style legislation should not be anathema, I think, to kind of new right national conservative types. Yeah, well, uh, I come at this from the perspective of someone who has probably been a beneficiary of the work from home revolution, having done it myself for the last more than five years, basically. Uh, I certainly, from personal experience, don't think that it's for everyone. And I could see the net negatives substantially outweighing the positives in terms of atomization, physical separation, not having a workplace sort of culture, and there being all sorts of other negative knock-on effects to it as well. Some countervailing forces that are kind of interesting to think about are, is this going to ultimately lead to the decline of cities to some extent? And then what are the consequences of that? Will there be a shift from blue states to red states, essentially, of the laptop class because the cost of living will be lower in the red states. They don't need to be located next to the expensive metro areas. And so consequently, is that going to shake up the politics in places that would otherwise be kept uh, pure from the progressive influences coming from the cities? Uh, I also think is worth considering as well. But then the other thing that just struck me looking at some of the data out there on the, these numbers are you see that DC of you know major metro areas is one of the higher work from home cities in the country in terms of percentage. And you know, this only underscores from my vantage point, the fact that the administrative state needs to be ripped out of DC and scattered around the country. Um, and I think that people ought to be first to work, forced to work in the office five days a week if they want to work in a government office. I think that would have manifest usually positive consequences. So one political uh, sort of implication, I think, to the data that we ought to consider is, you know, should this be further evidence that we ought to move DC out of DC and force people to work in the office? What would that do? How much better would our administrative state be? How much less attractive would it be to the wrong kind of people to the extent we had that sort of reform? 
super, super brief final point before we go to Rachel. It's worth thinking about how this um, brings the sort of family home life together in a way that it used to be. You know, people didn't have to go, you know, commute into a city for work, you know, for, for centuries and centuries is, is not what it was. Um, and I think that would be a really exciting development if we had other forms of social capital flourishing and, and had stronger communities. But in, in the context that we're in, it's it's frightening. Rachel, tell us, um, about what's what's been happening with this like, serious antitrust dust up. Yeah, so to pivot off what Josh said about, you know, potentially this militates toward more um, antitrust enforcement against Silicon Valley, this idea, you know, of, of, of bigger companies sort of governing us, what's happening in the house is the barest minimum right now of anything that could possibly happen uh, on antitrust this Congress. So if you've been following this debate at all, you know, there's been a number of bills proffered uh, around the antitrust universe re regarding big tech. These are really not those. Um, you know, you saw big bills that would reshape uh, the business practice of the industry. Again, this is not what this is. It's a package of three bills that are like the absolute most marginal things you could do from the legal enforcement side. Very briefly, you have a bill that basically stops big tech from gaming uh, the venues in which uh, their lawsuits are filed. Right now, you know, you have a lawsuit filed out of Texas and, you know, big tech will move it to the Southern District of New York, somewhere more favorable to them. They will stop that process. The second bill says, oh, hey, if you're a company that wants to merge and you get subsidies from hostile governments like China, you have to disclose that. And then the third bill, which is becoming hotly contested, is a bill that essentially raises the fees that merging firms have to pay to the FTC. And you're seeing this get caught up uh, in a debate among Republicans about whether or not this, quote unquote, funds the woke antitrust enforcement of Lena Khan. Now, I do not believe that it does. The way the bill is constructed, the way that I've read it, it's clear that the fees that are paid by billion-dollar companies, the fees are lowered for other companies, but billion-dollar companies pay a fee to have their merger reviewed. It goes into a fund that is then subject to congressional appropriation. It does not flow directly into the coffers of the FTC. Uh, it does flow directly to the antitrust enforcement of DOJ, but that's a separate matter, separate funding mechanism. I do not think it does this. But getting out of the weeds for a second, these bills may not pass, and it's I think as someone who's observed and been involved in this over the last several years, it's very frustrating because these bills passed with flying colors in the Senate. One of them is a bill by Mike Lee, the other by Senator Tom Cotton, the other is by Chuck Grassley, uh, not woke Democrats. All three of them have put out a press release supporting passage of these bills. And yet you have a group of Republicans in the House joined by Silicon Valley Democrats saying, no, no, you know, for different reasons, right? They don't want these bills to pass. And what's frustrating is that, again, this is the barest mechanism of enforcement that we could be doing. And if if we can't as a party agree to move these bills forward, what on earth are we going to be able to agree to pass next Congress? Um, you know, this is the barest minimum of no new government agencies, no new government authority, no new anything. This is literally just enforcement in the marketplace. Again, the basic uh, marginal, um, you know, hardly a ripple in the in the pond kind of thing, and we can't do it. And it's disappointing. And so I, I'm wondering what the group thinks about how this, what this says about what we're able to do next Congress. Is it is it just going to be half-hearted taking on big tech or are the people that constantly say break up big tech actually going to some, some, somehow have a change of heart uh, when they're in charge in November, if they're in charge? Yeah. So, I mean, like putting on my 
you know, one of my numerous side hats, my like council policy advisor side hat for Mike Davis's Internet Accountability Project group. I mean, you know, I, I read all Mike's op-eds on these various bills. And, you know, these, these, these are such common sense provisions. I mean, one that would prohibit companies like Amazon from kind of manipulating their algorithm to preference their own kind of in-store products over those of, of third-party vendors who they often probably pilfer the underlying intellectual property or at least kind of the basic know-how uh, from. Uh, things like the JCPA, that's like kind of the journalism kind of centric package, uh, a, a bill that would kind of uh, prevent Apple and Google from being able to kind of throttle apps because they have monopolies over the app stores. I mean, Rachel's right to kind of emphasize that these very, and, you know, as, and as Rachel mentioned, obviously the one about litigation in, in the Northern District of California, these are, these are small potato bills here. We're not talking about kind of you know, statutorily codifying or statutorily getting rid of the consumer welfare standard. We're certainly not talking about kind of a statutorily codifying with a neo-Brandeisian kind of a big is bad standard, the likes of which someone like Matt Stoller and probably Josh Hawley would like. No, this is not that. We're not talking about kind of like a fundamental shift in the landscape. We're talking about kind of like very, very incremental stuff. Frankly, the kind of stuff that like for someone like me, I don't want to speak for Rachel, but I would imagine like her who is like who are like very invested in this space, kind of hard to get like that that excited about these bills because like even though like they would they would be good, you know, I'm not going to go and write like a 5000 word think piece about like 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 the great kind of civilizational moral imperative for Apple or Google to like not discriminate against it, like truth social or whatever, right? I mean, like uh, it's a good bill, but like so okay, so what is so, so what does that say? I've been filibustering for a little while here. I I, mean, I guess like my 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 big takeaway is that if we're going to become bearish and pessimistic about antitrust, then I, I, you know, I think that 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 common carrier has to be kind of um, the natural step, and you know, they're not necessarily equivalent, right? I mean, they are different remedies. They are different remedies that, that, that can and should be applied prudentially as it pertains to different problems. Not everything that should be regulated as a common carrier has an antitrust problem. Not everything that has an antitrust problem is necessarily equivalent to a common carrier. So it's a very sloppy kind of conflation. I guess what I'm just saying is that, especially kind of given this post net choice versus Paxton win that we just had down there in the Fifth Circuit, we discussed that in the podcast last week. It seems to me that as far as kind of plotting the path forward, that maybe kind of Texas's HB 20 style kind of non-discrimination legislation is a, is a better place to focus our energies. One obvious problem is that that's really more easily done at the state levels. Where does that actually like leave Congress, right? Um, and I'm not entirely sure. I'm not sure I have a good answer to that question. Um, a Republican president could actually do a lot in common carry regulation just straight through Title II of the 1934 Communications Act. Um, a lot of that can actually be done administratively. Um, although Senator Bill Haggerty last year, now that I think about it, did actually have a common carrier piece of legislation, the 21st Century Free Speech Act, I think it was called, or something along those lines. He had a very good Wall Street Journal op-ed about this particular bill. Um, but uh, anyway, I've been I've been kind of rambling and filibustering here, but um, I, I I I kind of come back to where I was last week, which is I, which is where I basically think that common carry regulation, whether it's happening at the state level or the federal level, is one of our clearest and most obvious paths forward, at least as it pertains to some of these companies, like the Facebooks of the world, for instance. And to Josh and Rachel's points, this is not even close to that. This is like the bare minimum. Um, that's being that's that's causing the flare up between people on the side of Jim Jordan and people on the side of Ken Buck. And I think if you're reading the tea leaves here politically, um, it, it seems as though there are members of the conservative caucus, um, whether they're actually in the Freedom Caucus or not, on the, the sort of right Trump-aligned side of the party, who are going to be a bulwark against antitrust legislation going forward. And then you have to ask the question, why? Uh, what What is it? 
uh, about people who who don't like big tech, who also don't see uh, reasonable antitrust steps, steps, not not necessarily the Neil Brandeisian uh, full antitrust steps that some people want, but reasonable antitrust steps. This is very small. I mean, this is not common carrier. This is not anything like net choice v. Paxton in this narrow, narrow thing that's caused uh, Jim Jordan to talk about wokeness um, and and to press Lena Khan on wokeness. This is not that. This is a very narrow thing that is even in and of itself is causing this this flare up. And so, if you read the tea leaves here, it feels like uh, there there may be. I think follow the money, uh, follow the money. I, I don't know if, if ideology can alone explain this um, or follow the alliances with business leaders that have not been fully severed uh, since 2020 in the, the sort of era of neo-wokeness. Um, I, I don't know what it is. I think, you know, we'll we'll be doing, I'm sure, reporting at the Federalist to try to get to the bottom of all of that. Um, but it does seem as though there are people who are who are uh, have dug their heels in and will be the bulwark against antitrust legislation legislation going forward and even people who don't like big tech and people who will use wokeness as sort of a fig leaf. Um, and, and if you're prioritizing Lena Khan's uh, like totally progressive ideology over the fact that antitrust legislation would disincentivize ideological monopolies, um, then you, you got things backwards. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I've long been skeptical of uh, the devotion in the legislative branch to adequately grappling with these issues. And I think one of the things that you know, this episode sort of exposes is the big tech lobby is obviously incredibly well-funded and powerful. What would an equal and opposite sort of counter lobby look like? Clearly, it doesn't exist today because otherwise you would have legislation uh, that would pass and probably more ro robust legislation with more teeth than what we're talking about here. So to that end, I think it leads naturally to Josh's conclusion of, you know, the legislative branch, uh, we probably should work under the assumption that, you know, at best, maybe it will lead to some lukewarm reforms down the road. But lawfare, the executive branch and the states actually look like probably more fertile ground. And also that, of course, you know, this always has had to be an all of the above sort of fight. We ought to be pushing on the legislative side of things, but we have to push using every other lever of power as well, because these issues are just that existential that they require that comprehensive a response. So I guess I would say, yes, this is kind of a demoralizing, it appears, outcome that's coming. But on the other hand, I think it underscores what we've known, that it's an uphill battle on the legislative front, and that we have to fight fire with fire using every single lever of power. All right. Well, I think with that, we're actually all set to move on to final thoughts. If anyone wants to kick us off. I can kick us off just with a sort of pivot off of final thought about my last segment. And, you know, I just the discussion of, you know, common carriage and, and antitrust and all these things available to us and these bills being none of that. And we can't even get those done. But one of the reasons I continue to come back to this, even though there's a million things going on in the country that, you know, the a, a new Republican majority could focus on. I think they have to get this right. And the reason is because of how integral tech is into the regime and enforcing the regime's uh, you know, preferences on the rest of us. Like this, when we talk about big tech, right, we're not just talking about the ability to say what we want to say on Facebook and Twitter, although that's valid. We're talking about accessing the economy. We're talking about the biggest digital advertising firms in the world. We're really talking about the global marketplace and public square. It is it, unconscionable that that we can just 
say we're going to address all the ills of the Biden administration without addressing their corporate allies who can do this without accountability. And that's really what this fight is about. And, you know, on the on the policy particulars, one of the reasons we have to have the common carriage discussion is because we've failed at antitrust enforcement for so long. We've allowed the concentration to build up to the extent that it has, and we haven't addressed it. So now we're in a situation where, yes, you know, antitrust can't solve everything that's taken place in the marketplace. So now you have to treat these companies like they are, which is common carriers. But we didn't have to be in this place. We could have had more, more robust enforcement. More robust enforcement does not mean regulation. It doesn't mean woke uh, antitrust. It simply means following the law in the market and being more skeptical of the concentrated corporate power that we're now all living under, not just in the tech sector, but everywhere else. So to me, this episode going on in the House right now is kind of a very uh, sad trombone uh, coda to all of the rhetoric about how we're going to take on big tech and we're going to do all this great stuff. And it's literally a deflating balloon is what I hear when I look at this debate. Um, it's not giving me a lot of confidence going forward. So I, I, I guess I'll do something totally unrelated. Um, so we're we're recording this on Wednesday, September 28th, which is roughly the day that Hurricane Ian is making landfall in, in my adopted state of Florida. I'm actually not in Florida. I, I flew out this morning. I, I don't know how my flight wasn't canceled, but I'm actually here in New York City. At the time that we're recording to this, um, thankfully, the Miami-Fort Lauderdale area looks like it's mostly going to be spared. It's really the Gulf Coast of Florida with, with Tampa in particular that is just going to get absolutely pummeled. So, um, you know, at this time, my my prayers go out to all of those on the, on the Gulf Coast of Florida and, you know, may the damage be a, 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 as minimal as possible. The reason why it's relevant for NatCon squad is because uh, the governor of Florida, who is a frequent uh, person discussed on this program, uh, you know, is now tasked with with overseeing the recovery and response to what is going to be, you know, if, if, if the reports are true, it's what it has all the potential to be a once a generation hurricane. And, you know, I, I actually was living in Houston, Texas when Hurricane Harvey hit in 2017. So I, you know, I have seen kind of other once a generation hurricanes and it, it's, it's just really, really nasty. And I guess it's gonna be interesting from kind of a political commentary talking head perspective to just see what the interplay looks like between Governor DeSantis and President Biden. Who clearly they do not like each other very much, but they're going to have to work together here uh, with, with kind of coordinating FEMA, coordinating all the, all, the, all the state sheriffs, county, state resources. They're kind of all going to have to come together here. Uh, one silver lining is that Florida has a huge budget surplus. They have a massive rainy day fund. So, uh, you know, that's not going to make anyone's kind of loss of, of house property or, or God forbid, life or limb. It's not going to make it any any better. But um, it, it is nice at least to know that that the funds are there. But one thing that I'm personally looking at for, again, kind of just just thinking about kind of the future of the party movement in 2024 and all that stuff. I, I have to imagine that literally every single move and every single word that Governor DeSantis does and says is going to be, you know, scrutinized with like a, a, a massive microscope here. I mean, he is under like enormous pressure, and I'm sure that his team knows that. Um, but, you know, if he can even do a, a, a decent job here and escape without kind of, you know, a, a George W. Bush, Hurricane Katrina kind of style of like media just walloping you across the face. Um, I think that that will be viewed as a success if I had to guess. But most importantly, you know, we're just praying at least the time we're recording this, I'm not sure when it'll be released, but we're praying obviously for the, the folks on Florida's Gulf Coast in particular. I'll say, I think, uh, to pick up on a point, we ended the, the third segment on um, working from home with, 
it is the case that there are ways technology can can be more helpful, can strengthen families, can strengthen communities, um, but they're designed in ways right now that do really the opposite, that divide us, alienate, alienate us, atomize us, you know, all of those different things, um, and, and they give people inordinate control over our culture and C-suites and uh, Silicon Valley and Manhattan and Washington, D.C., um, but that's a kind of a, an optimistic glass half full way to think about this is that you, th there are things like creating this this home and work uh, union that has historically been strong uh, that you know the, the father didn't need to you know do the Don Draper get on a train every day and, and get into Manhattan from Connecticut and New Jersey thing and had more time to be uh, hands-on at the house and, and it all just sort of blended together um, in, in ways that were more healthy than what we see now. Um, that's that's good, but if it's only going to be good for people in the upper class and, and those benefits aren't going to be accessible uh, down the line and we're going to keep seeing social capital fray uh, in different ways. For instance, Tim Carney demonstrated in his book, Alienated America, that areas that voted for Trump in the Republican primaries in 2016 had lower capital, social capital than areas that voted for Jeb Bush, areas of over Marco Rubio or Ted Cruz. Those tended to be really strong communities. The, the, those more uh, favorable to populism tended to have less social capital. They tended to be economically downtrodden um, and then culturally downtrodden. And it, if we continue on this trend, where people do better financially based on where they live and their education level, um, and then do better sort of culturally, socially, and all of those different ways, um, we're getting into, I mean, we're, we're talking Gotham um, and beyond. We're, we're talking about a really, truly um, bad, bad, bad division in our society that's only going to get worse. And again, there seems to be basically no awareness of this in Washington, which is perpetually 10 years behind the curve when it comes to tech policy. Well, speaking of Gotham and division, uh, to go in a sort of unique direction uh, relative to what we talked about today, I wanted to return to my hobby horse of the regime's effort to criminalize dissent and just flag briefly. There's a blog post at Powerline I'd urge people to check out by John Hinderaker. It's actually titled Democrats Move to Criminalize Opposition. And it just highlights one of the subpoenas that the Justice Department has issued to uh, a redacted individual in Trump world and walks through what the Department of Justice is actually looking for. And to quote Hinderaker, nearly all of the documents relate to activities that are plainly lawful, alleging or denying the existence of fraud in the 2020 election, offering evidence of such fraud or its absence, planning to have someone serve as a Trump elector, arguing the vice president has important constitutional powers in context of certifying a presidential election, discussing strategies whereby Donald Trump might be found illegally to have won the election. These are all legal activities that have long been engaged in by members of both parties. And of course, subpoena also looks for a funding of efforts to contest 2020 election communications with about 100 people, some of whom are uh, Powerline's friends, I guess. Uh, and then of course, subpoena says that recipients might be called for testimony. I just think there's a perfect illustration of the fact that that Threadiesburg address that we talked about was sort of meant to normalize the idea of treating the opposition as not only criminal, but terroristic. And these subpoenas essentially operate under the idea that conservatives who dared to question uh, the regime's 
you know, narrative about elections broadly, about what is within bounds legally in terms of contesting them. They really want to treat you and hold their opposition under a microscope as if they are terrorists and chill them and punish them through this legal kind of process. So I think it's worth emphasizing again, you know, plainly legal matters, plainly legal matters here are what's being scrutinized by the DOJ. And I think we're entering a world of fishing expeditions galore, purely aimed at chilling and punishing any political opposition in this country. Uh, and that is a problem that's transcendent uh, and that we're all going to be have to grappling with, I think, uh, in the months and years ahead. Yeah, there's no question about that. Well, uh, thank you so much, everyone, for another wonderful edition of NatCon Squad. On behalf of Ben, Rachel, Josh, and myself, thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Emily Jashinsky, and we will see you at the next NatCon Squad. 